get off scot-free, where's the justice in that? And if God, in fact, sees that and God has the ability to do something about that, how is it or is it that God is just? Those are fine questions. It's another question I think we should ask ourselves. And it's this question. Am I just? Not just with my neighbors, but am I just in the sight of God? It'd be arrogant for us to ask questions as to whether or not God is just without stopping to think that maybe God has that question for us too. Are we just? Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 31 really pick up this thing of the justice of God and how it is we may be just before God. If you're joining us um, this morning for the first time, we're in the middle of a series through our statement of faith. We, we confess our faith in these summary statements in the London Baptist Confession of 1689. We're in the 11th chapter of that confession, which is on justification. And so what we're really confessing as we think through this sermon is that we believe that God justifies sinners. And that's at the heart of Christian belief. And we want to unpack that from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. So look with me there as we read God's word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So as we think through this section of our statement of faith, I want us, um, of this text, to ask and answer five questions. Five questions. Here they go. Number one. What is justification? What is justification? We'll see that in verses 21 and 22. Number two, why do we need justification? Why do we need justification? We'll see that in verses 22 and 23. The third question to consider this morning is, how does God justify sinners? How does God justify sinners? Verses 24 and 25. That was number three, right? Number four, 
why does God justify sinners by faith? Why does God justify sinners by faith? Why does he do it that way? Verses 25 and 26. And finally, how should we apply this teaching of justification by faith? How should we apply this in our lives? We see three applications in verses 27 to 31. So the first question, what is justification? Let me give you sort of a a definition here. Justification is the once and for all time legal verdict whereby God declares guilty sinners righteous through faith. Justification is the once and for all time legal verdict whereby God declares guilty sinners righteous by faith. The idea of justification really comes from the courtroom. It's a a legal idea. The idea is there in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God. That word righteousness comes from the same word that sometimes is translated justice or justness or um, justification. It's the same family of, of words and ideas. So when we speak of justification, we are speaking of how it is that the unrighteous gain a a righteous legal standing before the holy judge, God our creator. And maybe you like to watch those television dramas like Law and Order that often have us in the courtroom and you're probably familiar with the the scenes in the shows or the movies where the the trial has been going on and the prosecuting attorney has been making their argument and the defense attorney has been making their argument and all the arguments are being made and the jury is going back and forth and then you reach that point of, of sort of climax in the drama where the judge turns to the jury and says something like this, you know, how do you find or, or, or have you reached a decision? And the foreman of the jury will stand up and say something like this, in the matter of the state versus so-and-so, we, the jury, finds the defendant, you're hanging on for the next few words. The next few words is the heart of the verdict. You ever notice that the verdict in human courts always comes back either as not guilty or guilty? In view of the evidence that they have received, they say, hey, either enough evidence has been presented that this rascal is guilty, as far as we can tell, or or enough doubt has been raised that they're unable to say that, and they say, now the wording is really important here, they say not guilty. They do not say we find the defendant innocent. The positive proof of the defendant's Innocence is impossible in human courts. But now, that's not like justification with God. Here's the marvelous difference. When God looks at a sinner and considers the evidence on which he is judging that sinner's life, he either looks at the sinner and condemns them in their guilt because they live in apart from Christ, or he looks at the sinner and he declares not not guilty, he declares righteous. There's a statement there. There's a positive statement there. He affirms the presence of righteousness. That's his verdict. That's the end of the trial. 
Now, the text in verses 21 and 22 tell us basically that men try to uh, reach uh, the righteousness before God in one of two ways. Verse 21 tells us of a way that will not work, and verse 22 tells us of the only way that works. Verse 21, the path that will not lead to righteousness with God is obedience to the law. Notice what's said there. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In this context, the law refers to the, the Old Testament, the old covenant requirements of God that he had for Israel. And at the heart of the law, the sort of synthesis of the law, was the, was the Ten Commandments. But that was a summary. Jewish scholars and rabbis reading the Old Testament says, listen, if you read through the Old Testament, there are about 613 laws that are, that are meant to be kept, some moral, some civil, some religious. And this law makes reference to the entire books, then, of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. But notice now, Paul also makes reference to the law and the prophets. Oh, the prophets. Well, that's really the bulk of the rest of the Old Testament. This is a shorthand way of referring to the whole of the Bible before the coming of Christ. So what's Paul saying here? The righteousness that we need with God cannot be obtained by obeying those Old Testament requirements given to the nation of Israel. Look with me at Romans 3, 19 and 20, where Paul says that explicitly. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is, the law is God's way of saying, shut your mouth, and yes, you're guilty. Every mouth may be stopped, and everyone held accountable to God. For by works of the law, here it is, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We cannot earn a righteous verdict before God by obeying the law in the Old Testament. And that's true, even though, verse 21, notice, the law and the prophets bear witness to God's righteousness. Now, this is striking. The law and the prophets bear witness. They testify to the righteousness of God. They testify to the holiness of God. They testify to the standards that God has for his creation, but they can't get you there. It's like the first several trips we made to Washington, D.C. when we coming up as tourists. You come up 395, you, you're near the city, you know you're near the city, and you can see the Washington Monument from 395. But you can't get there if you don't know where you're going. You know, you're just driving and you're circling, you come back around, you drive, you circle. D.C. is a confusing street to drive around. So it is with the law. It's pointing to righteousness, and you're looking at all these commandments, and you go, I, I can't get there from here. It bears witness, but it doesn't provide. Don't seek right standing with God by trying to offer your own righteous obedience to the law. It will not work. Verse 22 tells us what will work. Faith leads us to this righteousness, to this verdict. Notice verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith is what has been manifested in verse 21. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But what is faith? 
In the words of our confession, faith is receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ's righteousness. Faith is receiving or accepting the righteousness of another, of Jesus Christ. And it is resting, it is, it is entrusting, it is depending, it is leaning on that very righteousness of another, Jesus Christ, to be our righteousness before God. Faith is given up on ever providing to God a righteousness of our own that will satisfy him. And it is throwing ourselves upon the righteousness of Christ as the only righteousness that satisfies him. We're going to say more about this later, but for now, just, just note that. The way of right standing with God is through faith, not through obedience to the law. So first question, what is justification? Justification is a once and forever legal verdict whereby guilty sinners are declared righteous through faith by God. Question number two, why do we need justification? Well, the answer to that is there at the end of verse 22 and into verse 23. There are two interrelated reasons. For there is, the text says, no distinction, verse 22, then it explains in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the first reason we cannot establish righteousness before God through obedience to his law and can only be justified by faith is we have all sinned. What is verse 23 again? For all have sinned. Church, how many have sinned? All of who? Okay. So I take it you agree with that statement. Who of us has not sinned? All of us have. Notice that verse 22 starts out by saying, there is no distinction. We all have the same problem before God. Doesn't matter if we are Jewish and Gentile in Paul's day. Doesn't matter if we are young or old. Doesn't matter if we are male or female. Doesn't matter if we are rich or poor. Doesn't matter if our skin tone is brown or darker brown or lighter brown or white or yellow. Doesn't, doesn't matter. There is no distinction. Our problem before God. God, and the reason we are not and cannot be righteous before God by obeying the law is we all have sinned. What is sin? Sin is any act that breaks God's law. So why do we sin? We sin because we are sinners. That's not exactly circular logic. The things we do with our bodies, the external acts that we, we undertake in breaking God's law, they come from someplace. Jesus says they, they come from our hearts. Right? All the things that we do without the body come from inside of the human nature. At our core, at our hearts, we've got this twisting, we've got this corruption, we've got this stain called sin. It's become part of our nature as, as people apart from Christ. And so we commit acts of sin because we have hearts of sin. The problem is deeper than what we do. The problem is as deep as our souls. We sin because we're sinners, and therefore we're unable to be righteous before God 
because of that. And that was the second thing, a related reason as to why we must be justified by faith, why we need this justification. Verse 23 also says, we all fall short of what? The glory of God. What is God's glory? You might think about it this way. God's glory is the sum total of God's perfection. God's glory is the sum total of all God's perfections. In God, there is no falling short. In God, there is no corruption of character as there is with man. In God, there is no no darkness at all, John says. In, In God... There is nothing wrong, nothing to tempt him to wrong. There is is only glory. There is no darkness at all. God dwells in unapproachable light, in the full splendor and radiance and beauty of holiness. That's his glory. And the law points out that we keep falling short of that glory. We're like Olympic high jumpers who've raised the bar to a point that we can't jump it. You know, we we were practicing, right? We were running and and, and trying to do well, and and in our practice, we set a bar at a level that we could could jump over. We run, we make the approach, we do do a little Lindy flop. I can't even do that now with my belly. You know, it don't even look like I'm bending over, does it? You know, we we do the Lindy flop, and we arc our backs, and we clear the bar. And we keep raising the bar a little bit more, a little bit more, but now in spiritual terms, God sets the bar, not us. And God has set the bar at his own perfection. We're not even close to it. We're like midgets running under the bar. Or or we're like clumsy men crashing into the bar. Every, Every time we attempt to jump, we break the bar. So it is with God's glory and his law and the sin of men. Romans 6.23 says it this way. In thinking about why we need this justification. It says, for the wages of sin is death. That's the payment we get for being sinners. Death. Not only a physical death, but a spiritual death as well, wherein we are separated forever from God. And in that separation, we experience the righteous wrath of God judging us for our sin. All of us have sinned. We agreed on that. And the text now says, All of us who are sinners have earned this death. That's why we need this justification. So what is justification? A once and forever legal verdict, a legal declaration of righteousness with God, from God, through faith. And why do we need this justification? Because we are sinners who fall short of the glory of God and deserve the judgment of death and wrath. Which brings us to the third question. How does God justify sinners? How does God justify sinners? Now that question, in the words of John Piper, and I agree with him, is the greatest difficulty in the universe. 
How is it that a God who is infinitely holy, infinitely glorious, infinitely pure, going to have in his presence people who are sinners from birth and sinners by nature? How is he going to close that gap and close that gap in such a way that he is just and we are counted as just? And here the text tells us that God justifies sinners by giving us three gifts. God justifies sinners by giving us three gifts, verses 24 and 25, and those three gifts are each marked by the prepositional phrases in those two verses. So look with me at verse 23. We're talking about those who were who all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now notice it's a comma there. The thought continues, and it says this. They are justified, number one, by his grace as a gift. Number two, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Number three, to be received by faith. Those are the three gifts. Number one, God gives sinners justification as a grace gift. As a grace gift. We are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, have you ever wondered why Christians love the word grace? There it is right there explained for us in this sentence. Grace means undeserved, unearned favor. And all the justification that we need with God in order to be right with God, we receive not as a matter of our actions, but as a matter of God's grace, of God's kindness. When God justifies a sinner, it's not because of anything the sinner says or does or has. It is solely because God is being kind. He is showing us favor. Our justification is a gift. Now, if that doesn't excite you, maybe it's because we've gotten too accustomed to gift giving. Uh, We have all kinds of days on the calendar for giving and receiving gifts. And if we're honest, we're mostly interested in receiving gifts. And if we're a little bit more honest, we maybe even feel a little bit entitled to receive gifts. We want our gifts on our birthday. We want our gifts on Christmas. We want our gifts at graduations. If we have anniversaries, we want gifts on our anniversary. And guess what? We tend to multiply anniversaries, don't you women? So it's not just the day you got married. It's also the anniversary of the day that we met and the anniversary of the day of our first date and the anniversary of the day of our first gift. I mean, you got a lot of anniversaries, right? And we want gifts, don't we? See, hey, somebody see, somebody know the truth, they laughing. Right? <laughs> and, and guess what can happen with that? We, we can grow to feel a little entitled to gifts, can't we? It's ours, we deserve it. We ought to have it. And when that happens, we're not amazed that anyone gives us gifts, are we? We're, we're a little bit more focused on ourselves and what we want or what we think we d- deserve than we are on the giver and the giver's kindness. We miss the giver for looking at the gift and thinking we deserve it. Now, now that, that's reversed for us when, when one of three things happens. When, when we sort of get a gift, number one, when we know our deep need for it. We have a need, and that need is troubling us deeply, and somebody gives us that gift that meets that need, oh, then we see the kindness of the giver, don't we? 
Number two, we have appreciation for the giver when the gift surprises us. We, we weren't expecting it. We weren't looking for it. We had no sense of entitlement to it. And kind of out of the blue, with, with great generosity, someone comes along and gives us a gift. And we're, we're moved by the giver and his kindness because we're surprised by it. When we have deep need, when we're surprised by it. Here's the third time when we are moved by gifts, when the gifts are really lavish. When the gifts are really expensive. And, and you know that that gift is to be prized because of what it costs the giver. And, and you know that in giving you such an expensive gift, the giver is also saying something about his love and delight for you. And you see his generosity in the giving. Justification is all of those things. It is surprising because we thought we needed to be good to earn God's love. And God says, no, all you need to do is trust in me. It's not only surprising, but it is desperately needed because we see that we are sinners and we deserve death and judgment from God. And not only is it, is it, is it desperately needed, it is incredibly expensive or lavish because this gift comes at the cost of the life of the Son of God. This doctrine is meant to make us look up to the giver and prize the giver and the gift given and to see our desperate need for it. So God justifies sinners, first of all, by giving them the gift of grace. Secondly, God justifies sinners based on what Jesus Christ has done by giving us his son. See that there in the second part of verse 24. We're justified by his grace as a gift. Number two, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. In other words, the gift of God's grace is wrapped in the package of his son. He gives us his grace through his son. Notice there, it's in Christ Jesus. So when we say that justification is a free gift from God, we do not mean that our justification costs God nothing. Oh no, there is an incredible purchase price involved. Notice the word redemption. That's a word taken from the marketplace now or the world of business. It means to buy back. Romans 7, 14, we were sold into slavery to sin, but now in Christ, God has purchased us back and justified us. And what was the purchase price for us? Notice, the one whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. God the Father put his son forward as a propitiation. That's a fancy word. That means he's the kind of sacrifice that satisfies the anger of God. To propitiate is to turn away wrath. So now, those who were dead in their sins and deserving of judgment with whom God was angry now have a sacrifice that God himself has put forward as a gift who turns away and satisfies all God's anger toward them. Notice, this propitiation is by his blood. It's a reference to the death of Jesus on the cross 
where in that act of giving himself on the cross, he is shedding his blood, and in the shedding of his blood, he is bearing the wrath of God, and in bearing the wrath of God in the place of sinners, he is satisfying that anger and turning it away. He is propitiating the Father on behalf of sinners. It's extraordinary. My oldest girl, Afia, has always been a good big sister. Now, if you ask her little sister and a little brother, they would eh. But she's always been a good big sister in this way. She's always been protective of her siblings. I, I mean, you want to see Afia's sense of justice get riled up? Start to mess with her siblings a bit. I've seen her as a four-year-old little girl face down playground bullies, messing with her and her sister. And I've seen her in the neighborhood taking little walks with my little girls when they were four and three through the neighborhood. I've seen her come to her little sister's defense. We, we were once walking through the neighborhood. I met some new neighbors, and, and I'm trying to be all spiritual, trying to strike up a conversation and do a little evangelism, you know, in the neighborhood and all that good stuff. And, you know, Fia is standing there with Eden, and he has a daughter too. And a little girl asked Eden if she could see her stuffed dog. She had this beautiful black stuffed dog that my mom had given her. Eden carried it everywhere under her arm. And Eden's a little hesitant. And, you know, I looked at her. I said, it's okay. So Eden gives the little girl the dog. The girl looks at the dog, begins to play with the dog. Pretty soon, the little girl has a dog under her arm. <laughs> and she playing, and she doing her own thing. And Eden says, you know, can I have my dog back? The little girl says, I'm not done yet. He's like, you know, she looks around. Says, can I have my dog back? The little girl says, I'm not done yet. Afia pulls my hand, pulls me over, and she says, um, if she doesn't give my sister her dog, there's going to be trouble. <laughs> it's a four-year-old. I, I said, excuse me, sir. Uh, baby, can I, get the, can, I get the, can I get the dog back? <laughs> and I've even seen her stand between me and Eden when there has been some infraction of the family rules or some sin that's committed and dad's gotten a bit angry and dad has now moved toward Eden to correct her, and not that she ever needed correction much, but, you know, once every blue moon, to, to correct her and, and is ready to chastise her, and, and, and Afia has come and stood between us. I mean, like, girl, you don't want to stand right there. <laughs> that is not a safe place. <laughs> you know, and, and unflinching, she stands there, and she gives some explanation, and she stands for her sister. And I'm looking at her stand for her sister, and even when I think about it, my, my heart melts. And I hug them both, send them on. The Father was looking from glory, angry over at our disobedience and our sin, and Christ stood in for us. And Christ stood in for us and offered himself for us and offered his obedience to be ours and, and suffered our wrath as if it were his. And something in the father's heart melts as he looks at his son and loves him. And loving him loves all those who trust in him. He has given Christ to be a propitiation, to turn away his anger by his blood, so that in that gift of his son, we might be justified. Notice the third thing that he gives us. He gives us not only grace, and he gives us not only his son, but he gives us also 
faith in Jesus Christ. You see that there in verse 25, the last prepositional phrase, to be, to be received by faith. This is really the theme of the entire book of Romans. Romans 1.16 tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, what? For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Gentile. And Paul goes on to explain in Romans 1.17, For in it, in the gospel, there is a righteousness of God that is from faith to faith. From first to last, this righteousness from God is by faith. And he quotes the Old Testament, says, the righteous or the just shall walk by faith. Romans 3.22, he comes to it again, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So faith or belief or trust in Christ Jesus is the pipe through which the water of God's justification flows to the sinner. The statement of faith, again, says that we are to receive and rest on the work of Jesus Christ as our Savior and our righteousness. So faith is to say, I accept, I receive Jesus as my own personal Lord and Savior, and it is to rest, it is to, it is to recline upon, it is to lean upon Jesus Christ and his righteousness as the grounds for our acceptance with God. It is to receive and to rest. So faith is not a work. Faith is not a merit. Faith of this sort is not natural to sinful man. Faith is a gift from God, and faith is the means by which God gives us all the other gifts of his grace in Christ Jesus. Without faith in Christ, the grace of God and the righteousness of God in Christ is completely ineffective for a sinner. I've been talking about gifts this morning. Maybe you've had this experience, too, with gifts. You woke up on Christmas morning, bright and early. Can't get you to get up early to go to school, but Christmas you get up early, run to the tree, look for the packages with your name on them, and you rip through those packages, and, and there before you is Rock'em Sock'em Robots. <laughs> okay, maybe that was my childhood, but, but there before you is this gift that you wanted. And you just, you, you, oh, thank you, you know, and you're just glad, and you bust open the box, and you, and you pull the gift out, and you're all ready to play with the gift, and then no what? Batteries. All of a sudden, all that joy you had in receiving that gift kind of vanishes, doesn't it? It's like, I got to give it. Mom, Dad, you didn't give me no batteries? All that gratefulness just gone. Where are you get no batteries, you know? Right? You got to wait a whole half day on Christmas or the next day to get batteries before you can play with the toy, right? You see, the gift without the batteries is useless. It's not functional. But now imagine you ran downstairs and you ran under the tree and you got the tree and you had one package in there with your name on it. You bust open the package, you open the package, and there's a big old box of batteries. But no toys. Well, well that's confusing, isn't it? Why you give me batteries and you didn't give me an electric football set? I mean, you know, what's going on with that? That's just confusing. People who say they have faith but don't have faith in Jesus Christ are confused. They have batteries but not the joy. And all the joy that God means for us to have in his salvation requires the batteries of faith. They, they must be added together to what Christ has done so that the joy of Christ and the work of Christ becomes ours through faith in him.
Faith is what unites us to Christ and all that Christ has done for us. It's the battery. It's what makes it ours and functional. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved, how? Through faith. And what does it say? And this not your own doing, it is what? The gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And our statement of faith captures this rather nicely in a number of places. Look with me. It's printed in your bulletin there. Look with me at a a couple of lines through the statement. In the middle of that first paragraph, you'll see a, a line like this. It says, Christ's one obedience is twofold. His active obedience rendered to the entire divine law. In other words, his active obedience is how Christ obeyed God perfectly when we didn't. And then it tells us of his, the second fold, his passive obedience rendered in his death. So in other words, he passively obeys God by submitting to the punishment of sin on the cross. Now, look at paragraph three of the statement of faith. By his obedience and death, Christ paid in full the debt of all those who are justified. By the sacrifice of himself in his bloodshedding on Calvary and his suffering on their behalf of the penalty they had incurred, he fully and absolutely satisfied all the claims which God's, ju- God's justice had upon them. Yet their justification is altogether free grace. Then it gives us three reasons. Firstly, because Christ was the free gift of the Father to act on their behalf. Secondly, because Christ's obedience and his satisfying the demands of the law was freely accepted on their behalf. And thirdly, because nothing in them merited these mercies, hence God's exact justice and his rich grace are alike rendered glorious in the justification of sinners. Praise God Almighty. Look there at the end of paragraph one. We think about faith. Those just... Those thus justified receive and rest by faith upon Christ's righteousness. And this faith they have, not of themselves, but as the gift of God. Now look at paragraph 2. The faith which receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness is the sole means of justification. And this is how a glorious God justifies sinners. We simply need to receive and rest in Christ as our righteousness. Paragraph 4. From all eternity, God decreed to justify all the elect, and in the fullness of time, Christ died for their sins and rose again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until, in due time, the Holy Spirit actually applies to them the benefits of Christ's person and work. Here's the question. Have you worked out your own justification by repenting of sin? And trusting in Christ as the only means whereby you would be righteous with God. What God decreed in eternity, he means for you to embrace in time. Call upon the name of the Lord that you might be saved. See what he has done. In kindness, he has not yet finally judged you for your sin. That's grace. In kindness, he has given his son to satisfy his own anger over your sins. That's grace. And in kindness, he will give you the gift of faith. 
Call upon the name of the Lord while there's time. What is justification? It's a once and for all legal verdict whereby a holy God declares sinful men righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Why do we need that justification? We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and therefore have earned the wages of death. And how, do, how does God justify us if we are sinners? By giving us three gifts. Grace, his son, and faith to everyone who calls upon his name. Which brings us to number four. Why does God justify sinners in this way? You may be here and you're new to the Christian faith and you're thinking, well, this sounds a little convoluted. You know, God could do some different things. Maybe he should just have a lower standard. You know, we, we can do some of the law. Maybe he ought to grade us on a curve. You know? or, or maybe you're thinking, this is kind of convoluted. Man, why he could just snap his fingers and, and, and just, you know, wrap this thing up and, you know, it'd be easy peasy, one, two, three, easy, right? Why all of this complexity? Why this way? Why through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone? Why, why doesn't God, why does he allow any road to come to him? Why didn't all the religious roads lead to God? And he just sort of stand at the end of the road and welcome everybody, however they want to approach him religiously. So why does God do us this way? Answer, second part of verse 25, verse 26. God justifies sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. For many long centuries, God has been patient which means that he has not finally judged sin and sinners the way a holy God would. And in his patience with us, a question arises. Is he just? Is he really just? Do shooters in churches get away with it? Do the few bad apples on police forces get away with it? Do, do the burglars and the muggers and the drug dealers and and the thieves and liars, do they, do they get away with it? I'm, I'm looking at them, and some of them seem to be getting away with it. Here's where that question, is God just, comes into the heart and into the mind. God, you're being patient, but will you be just? Again, this is why Piper calls this the greatest problem in the universe. This is why I think it's Leon Morris calls this paragraph, verses 21 down to 26, the most important paragraph ever written, right? This is the, this is the summit of, of God's gospel salvation. And it's a tension that's in the Bible itself. So you might write these verses down and look at it later. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Some of you will know these words well. God speaks there to Moses, tells Moses who he is. He says, the Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and glorious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Then it says this, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How are you going to hold those two things together? 
This God who's abounding in mercy and forgiveness and kindness and steadfast love, but who by no means is going to clear, clear the guilty. How's that reconciled? The universe is asking that question until we come to verses 25 and 26. Romans 3, 25 and 26 tell us that God justifies sinners by grace through faith in Christ alone so that God can show his own justice. You see that there? So that he can prove his own just character by not letting sin go unpunished while at the same time, in the same act of Christ's crucifixion on the cross, justify also those who believe. So Jesus' work on the cross... And his obedience to the Father does double duty. It proves that God is just, and it allows God to justify sinners through faith. Notice, how do we know that God is just? He sacrificed his Son to punish the sins of the world. And how do we know that God will forgive? He sacrificed his Son to punish the sins of the world. The cross of Christ makes everything right in the universe. It makes everything just in the universe. It vindicates God himself, and it justifies sinners who trust in Christ. And this is why, again, the New Testament scholars say this is the most important paragraph in the Bible. So, we think about the Charleston shooting. This text is why news of that event doesn't break us. We weep, and we maybe even feel a righteous indignation, but it doesn't break us. It doesn't leave us confounded. It doesn't leave us wondering about justice in this world or the world to come. It's this text why we have hope for ourselves and hope for the families of the slain and hope even for the shooter. We know that justice will be served, that God will have his justice, either in judgment of the shooter on the day of judgment or in judgment of Christ in the place of the shooter. But in either event, God's justice and his judgment will come to pass. We know that God will be just and will be right to justify the shooter if he repents and believes. Why? Because for the act of shooting and murdering and for the racist heart that gave rise to it, Christ died. He atoned for it. He suffered for it. He paid the penalty for it. So that this man might be justified before God because of Christ. He can never recover. He can never repay what he has done to take those nine lives. You can't even count the amount of damage he's done in the broken lives of people who were their loved ones. He cannot now stack up good works that overcome that. Christ can. Christ has. He has supplied a perfect righteousness and he has suffered the penalty for his sin and our sins and the sins of the entire world so that God would be seen to be just and the justifier of those who believe. And the families of the victims believe this. We know this because at the, at the bond hearing, they, they are pleading with this man, repent and believe. 
And they are saying to this man, we forgive you. How do you forgive this? How do you forgive this apart from the workings of Christ in the heart? Apart from coming to know the grace of God in the Son of God given to you by faith. Unless you have been forgiven, how do you come to do that? To forgive that way? It's because God has designed our salvation to work this way. That it would be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If he required anything of us, we would never receive his righteous judgment. So, God saves this way to vindicate his name. And he saves this way to save sinners. It's the only way to save sinners. Which brings us to our final question. How should we apply this teaching? We see three things in verses 27 to 31. And this teaching is meant to be applied, beloved. So if you look there in paragraph 6 of your confession of faith, you know, this is, this is um, a faith that is not just faith alone, but, but faith that carries with it all the other virtues, all the other works, all the other graces that God calls us to, to demonstrate. So justification by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from the law, number one, verses 27, 28, it's the first application. It eliminates boasting. It eliminates boasting. You ask yourself the question, why, why does the Bible point to that? Well, it's because religious people can be proud. All of us, right? We, we have this temptation to do things for the Lord, and to take note of what we did, and to kind of stand back and admire our work, and imagine that God is really pleased. And before we know it, we're telling other people about our works for the Lord, and we're expecting other people to stand back and really be in awe of the things that we have done for the Lord. Religious people are still sinners. <laughs> and, and we are tempted to pride, and we are tempted to boasting, and the most odious of, of pride is religious pride. It really is. How can people who know that the only thing they contributed to their salvation is their sin, how can such people ever become puffed up before the Lord? Everything we have, we receive. And we didn't deserve. And it was more generous than we could ever have imagined. And it surprised us. And so it ought to humble us. All right? So it ought to be the case that the most humble people we encounter are people who have encountered Jesus, the most humble of all. For what does Philippians 2 tells, tell us? He did not regard equality with God something to be jealously grasped, but he made himself nothing, made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And the text there says we are to we have to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. The cross brings us gloriously low, makes us beautifully humble. It eliminates boasting. So, so let's go back to our very first sermon as a church in our, in our sort of pre, pre-launch services. Very, very first sermon, you remember what it was? It was in Corinthians. That's right. If we're going to boast... We boast in our weaknesses. We, we don't boast in having exciting preaching. I know you're sitting there thinking, yeah, that, that ain't something we would think, you know. We don't boast in exciting preaching. We, we don't boast in 
electrifying worship. We, we, don't, we don't boast in. We've got all these programs and ministries in the community. We, if we're going to boast, the Bible says, let us glory in the cross. And let us boast in our weakness so that God's power would remain on us. Don't, I just want to remind us not to be discouraged with any semblance of weakness you discover in this body of Christ. We're not ashamed of it. We're not hiding it. We embrace it so that God's power would rest upon us. We're going to boast of anything. It's in our weakness and in the cross, nothing else, because we are recipients of grace. Okay. Second one. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from the law, it not only eliminates boasting, but it energizes missions. It energizes missions. You see that there in verses 29 and 30. Paul asks this question, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. That's a marvelous couple of sentences there. This is where we should refer to paragraph 6, I think, of our statement of faith. I don't have it right before me where it tells us that, that God is going to justify both his old covenant people and his new covenant people the same way, by faith. The way Paul refers to that is to Jew and Gentile, to circumcised and uncircumcised. He, he, he is going to justify all of the nations on the same basis, specifically the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. That's how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. He says that the, the scriptures prophesy to Abraham that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. In the very promise that God made to Abraham, the first Jew, in Genesis 12, to make him a great nation and to make them his people, embedded in that promise, is, is the, that seed of a promise, is the tree of salvation for all nations, that, that God will justify Jew and Gentile by faith in Christ alone. This is how the whole Bible hangs together. And the Old Testament looks forward to this day, and the New Testament tells us of this day when all God's promises were delivered in Christ, his son. And so this means, since God is the God of all people, and God justifies all people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that the work of missions is to make this message known then to all people, to go and to tell those who don't yet know this, that there is a way to be righteous before God that has nothing to do with their religious observances, but is received only by faith in Christ. And again, we think about our calling as a church. This is why our tagline says, we want to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. So from the four corners around our individual homes to the furthest reaches of the planet, we want to go take this good news, that, that there is a good, kind, loving God who is just and the justifier of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, haven't we gotten off to a wonderful start on the four corners of the block? I mean, just this past Saturday, I was surprised when Zahil and the crew came by the house and rang the bell. They were going out for our, they're sort of every Saturday uh, morning, knocking on doors, praying for the neighborhood, sharing the gospel. Titus went and opened the door. And uh, Titus bagged up from the door. He said, 
you're not going to believe this. So what's wrong, Titus? There's a lot of people outside. You know, now, you know, Saturdays are his pajama day. He don't want to see people come over to the house, right? So, so he backed away. We go outside, and there, in, in company, were Christians from four churches partnering in the gospel. Anacostia River Church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, New Macedonia Baptist Church. Give me the fourth one. Clifton, Clifton Park Baptist Church. Coming to join with us and going door to door to make Jesus known. Oh, that's glorious. And, and not only that, this sort of Saturday morning, going out, if you haven't gone out, you don't need to be an expert evangelist. You, you can walk and pray. Walk with the rest of the group and pray and, and get in where you fit in and, and watch how many who have already discovered this, watch how it happens to you, how the Lord ignites things in your soul as you lay your life down to give away Christ. But not only that, the number of you who've been joining those who already live in the neighborhood by, by moving over and, and, and coming, not just to find cheap home sales, but, but coming to be a part of the community, to give your life to the community in the work of the gospel. You know, over these last several weekends, we've got numbers of people who are, who are moving boxes and loading trucks and, and coming into homes, and they're coming, you're coming, and I praise God for this, because you want to love the block and love the people in the community and be one of the people in the community, and to do that in order to make Jesus know. And whatever risk you're facing, whatever financial decisions you're facing, whatever things are working in your heart, you're doing that for the glory of God in the proclamation of Christ. I mean, I feel like the Lord has given us a, a more than hope for a start in reaching the four corners of the block, and yet we got our eyes on more, the four corners of the globe, and this text is part of what propels us. So pray for us as elders and pray for our, let us pray together as a congregation. The Lord would give us opportunities to send missionaries, to take short-term trips, to support those who are already on the field. Isn't it been wonderful to have Mike and Paula Law here with us last week serving in uh, Asia among Muslim peoples? The, the week before that, to have Brenton Howerton with us who's in Dubai taking the gospel among Muslim peoples there. There are many others that we pray for that you know. And, and we want to be vigorously supportive of that work, and we want to join them in that work. That's part of how you apply this doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You go tell others. Finally, I said, I said number three. Number three, <laughs> finally, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from the law, it establishes the law. It eliminates boasting. It energizes mission. It establishes the law. You see that there in verse 31. Do the uncircumcised, uh, excuse me, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And we do that with this doctrine in at least three ways. Number one, by, by pointing to the fulfillment of the law. The law is pointing forward to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment. And in fulfilling the law, Christ establishes the law. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, think not that I have come to abolish the law, and the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. And he does in every way, in his active obedience and his passive obedience. And, and the other way that the law is established um, through justification is, is by satisfying the demands of the law. Again, in Christ's death and obedience. And thirdly, and this is spoken of, this is summarized for us in paragraph 5 of our statement of faith, by making the law good and helping us to keep fellowship with God. Notice here, there is a Christian use of the law. 
Paragraph 5 says, God continues to forgive the sins of all the justified, period. Praise God. They can never lose their justification. But they may, by reason of sin, fall under God's fatherly displeasure. In which case, until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg God's pardon, and renew their faith and repentance, God will not usually restore to them the light of his countenance. What does this text tell us? That we may from time to time find ourselves overcome with sin. And there's a solution. It's the same solution that atoned for our sins when we first came to Christ. His sacrifice on our behalf, and, and God continues to justify, to, to freely forgive those who are justified by faith in Christ. But our sin, which we know through the law, interrupts our fellowship with God. But there's a way to renew that fellowship, to feel again the brightness of his face lifted up to us. That is to confess our sins, to repent of them, and to renew our obedience to God. And in that happy renewal of obedience, we experience the forgiving, cleansing love of God. In this way, the law is established, not as a means of justification, but as a sure guide for our continuing sanctification and fellowship with God. What is justification? It is that legal verdict that God gives over guilty sinners through faith alone and Christ alone. Why do we need this justification? It's because all of us are sinners and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and we deserve God's judgment. How does God justify us? Not by anything that we do, but by giving us three gifts. Grace, wrapped up in his son, handed to us in faith. And why does God save that way? Not only for, his just, for our justification, but to prove that he too is just. And we're meant to live this doctrine by eliminating boasting, energizing missions, and establishing the law in its proper use. This is an entire way of life, the Christian life. Preaching the gospel to ourselves, living the gospel in our daily lives, sharing the gospel to others. And if you've not yet entered this way of life, we want to call you to. We want to invite you to. We want to plead with you to enter this way of life. And it's simple. It's all a gift. What you have to do is receive it and rest upon it. Accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior who died to atone for your sins on Calvary's cross and three days later was raised, the Bible says, for your justification and who is coming again to take you to be where he is. Accept him. Trust your soul to him. Follow him in the obedience that comes from faith. And you will have newness of life and fellowship with God. And you will be justified. And you will never lose that justification if your faith is in Christ want to know more about what that means we would love to tell you there are lots of christians in this room who delight to tell you we won't beat you over the head we won't try to twist your arm we don't have any high pressure gimmicks we just have this good news that we hope you will accept let's pray together father we give you praise and thanks for what jesus has done 
what you have given us in Christ your Son. For in him, Lord, you have given us that grace which saves us. In him you have given us the righteousness which we so desperately need. And in him you have sort of satisfied your own anger and wrath toward us. And we give you thanks that you have given us faith in him, those who believe in him. And we pray that you would give us faith, O Lord. Even now, even this moment, Lord, we pray that by the sovereign workings of your spirit, you would open our heart to believe on Christ, that they would feel the logic of this text, that they would feel the argument of this text and know it's true and rest their hopes upon Christ, Lord. May they be able to say in all sincerity before you, God, I have sinned and I fall short of your glory and I deserve your judgment. And may they be able to go on to say, but God, you have given a grace to us in Christ to be the propitiation of your, of, of our, of your wrath, O Lord. His blood was shed for my sins. May they claim that and hope in that. And may they go on to be able to say, my life is yours, O Lord. Make of it what you will. Grant them this faith, O Lord, we pray. Grant it to them even now. And justify them as your own. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And we praise you because you saved us with no dependence upon us but in your own power and by your own kindness, you have justified sinners. Oh Lord, we praise you because you have justified us, those who believe. And we pray these things, Father, with gladness and adoration, in Jesus' name, amen.